When did you see him last? September 39. When the business started? Hmm. See much of him before that? Once in a while. Best friend I ever had. That sounds like a cheap novelette. Well, I write cheap novelettes. I'm afraid I've never heard of you. What's your name again? Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 45 and we're back to Cole's choice. What did you select this time? I selected The Third Man from 1949, directed by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene and starring Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, Orson Welles, and Trevor Howard. Also notable... Beautiful cinematography by Robert Krasker, and that very distinctive score by Anton Karras. We don't usually do this because people who have listened to the show know this by now, but I did want to put a spoiler warning at the very top of this episode. There are a couple of very significant reveals in the film, and we will talk about those in explicit detail, so if you haven't seen the film and you care, go watch the movie first, come back to our discussion after. The film itself kicks off with that score, which I love. How do you feel about it? It was so unique. I love it too. It sets such an interesting tone. And I also really like seeing that opening image of the strings moving as well. There's no person. I think it does a lot to set up what we're about to see actually because you have the very distinct almost grid and abstract thing that the zither is. It's on a zither. Did we mention that? Because the trailer at the time mentioned that he will have audiences in a dither with his zither. (laughs) Good one, trailer. I think it adds an awful lot of old world feel to it. I was just going to say that. It's what I think of as that sort of Django rhythm. So it definitely puts me in the mood of Europe. And people loved it, by the way. We're not the only ones that liked it. It was a huge hit when it was released as a soundtrack single, The Third Man Theme. It spent 11 weeks at number one in the U.S. on the Billboard charts. I also love how it changes throughout the film. It has different uses at different times. Not quite like The Long Goodbye, where you hear different iterations of the theme song played in different outlets. I'm thinking more of its uses, and at some points it's more discordant, or downbeat, or upbeat, and it's often in direct contradiction to what's happening on the screen. It is super jaunty at times that are awfully melancholy. Do you think that hurts it at all? No, I think it makes it better. Well, the film itself is about an American author, Holly Martins, played by Joseph Cotton, who comes to Vienna on the promise of a job from a friend of his, Harry Lyme, played later by Orson Welles, to discover that his friend is dead under suspicious circumstances. He then sets out to unravel the mystery, only to discover it's not what he thought it was. Our setting, as you mentioned, is Vienna. And the film is set in contemporary of the time, Vienna, post-war. Ruined from the war. Bombed out, rubble everywhere. And we learn in that great voiceover that I only just now discovered is actually Carol Reed, telling us about the thriving of the black market at the time. Anything's for sale. Not only is there a thriving black market, but significantly it's a divided city. It is run essentially by four occupying forces. The United States, Great Britain... France and Russia. 
Four times the bureaucracy. <laughs> and then some. Four times the graft, four times the corruption. Tellingly, in this beautiful cityscape that we see, even as bombed out as it is, I've never seen a city look so beautiful. Hats off to Robert Krasker for making it look like a wonderland with this high-contrast cinematography. But interspersed in the middle of all these shots of cathedrals and beautiful buildings and rubble strewn everywhere, you have that corpse floating face down at the water's edge. Something is rotten underneath this city. The pace of this film is unbelievable. It's paced like a relentless thriller, even though it's not quite. There's more to it than that. It's paced very much like an action movie, almost. He's barely off the train and has his passport checked before he goes to visit his friend and gets this terrible news delivered. On the way, tellingly, he passes under a ladder. He gets to his friend Harry Lyme's building, and I want to take a second just to talk about this building and when we see Harry's lover Anna's building later I imagine when you see these plush yet faded buildings what they used to look like Mm. because it's as if a palace has been divided into apartments when he arrives at Harry's building the porter who is speaking to him in German tells him you're basically too late your friend died in the street I witnessed the accident And just 10 minutes before, there were other friends of Harry's here. I have the benefit of understanding a bit of German. Mm -hmm. I studied it for several years. And so I found myself often in the position of knowing a bit more than Holly does before he knows it. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about that. Because they very purposefully do not subtitle those sections. They want the audience, I think, to feel as adrift as Holly is at this point, as disoriented as he is. We're supposed to be in his shoes, finding out things as he does. Did it make a difference to your experience to be able to actually understand what the man was saying? A couple of things about that. Simply from a process standpoint, I also understand some French. And so whenever I watch a film in either of those two languages, I'm trying to decipher if I can follow it without reading the subtitle. Mm. And I'm also trying to determine what did they leave out of the subtitle. Oh, because the translation, yes, how accurate it is. Often those things are condensed down mm. because we would be reading things on the screen for a very long time. So I try to detect more nuance sometimes. Okay. That's just something I'm always on the lookout in the back of my mind. The other thing about that is It made it, I think, actually more interesting to me because I could focus a little bit more on what the actual mystery is. We find out later it's not so much about how Harry died, but actually what did Harry do? Mm. And so that information that's communicated that he just gets bits and pieces of, I'm trying to decipher for myself and figure out what the movie is telling me at a different pace than he's learning about. So from this initial conversation, were you able to glean anything? It was actually pretty easy to follow. Right away, he says, zu spät, which is too late. And so you know, oh, something happened. That's to the point. (laughs) Exactly. And I got the whole part about other friends there and dead and all of those sorts of things. So not much more than Holly was finding out. No, no. I don't think a lot of things are held back. Though I'm not a master of the language, so I could have missed out on certain things. But it is kind of fun to hear right away and feel that shock as a viewer that is delayed for Holly. Good point. It also frees you up to watch facial expression and body language while these lines are being delivered, whereas I would have to be concentrating on reading the subtitle to follow the story. 
And there's a great scene later on that we'll get to where that tension is much higher. And I was so anticipating something terrible happened as Holly is completely oblivious as to what is being said Mm -hmm. around him Mm -hmm. and about him. Well, it is right here that we have our first instance of what is going to be numerous instances of Reed's use of the Dutch angle. The Dutch angle, if you're not familiar with the term, just refers to when your camera is tilted at an angle to convey a sense of unease or distress or possibly nefarious goings-on, lies being told. It's to convey that something is not quite right with this scene. Off kilter. And when you say a lot of Dutch angles, it is a lot. It's used constantly. So much so that this film could be the textbook for that. It's a much maligned technique these days, I think. It's not used very well when it is used. Probably it became overused, would you say? And used in the wrong ways? More used in the wrong ways. A handful of people have managed to employ it judiciously. In fact, there are a couple of really nice ones in Do the Right Thing, which we just talked about a few episodes ago. But for the most part in contemporary film, people either avoid it or use it poorly. This is the complete opposite of that. This is a masterclass. It is all about furthering the story. There is a great story that William Wyler sent his friend Carol Reed a level after seeing this movie so that he could keep his camera straight. That was obviously a joke. But I know that there are some people that this technique just does not work for. I was going to ask you if you thought that the later widescreen ratios that films would eventually be shot in, 185 to 1, 235 to 1, rather than full screen or academy ratio, which at most is 137 to 1, I think the square composition helps. I think when you get into these wide frame compositions, it's much harder to effectively use it. What do you think? I hadn't thought about it until you asked. I'm so sorry. I think you're absolutely right that it wouldn't capture the same idea in that widescreen. It's not about necessarily the composition of what's happening in the shot, but more about the character and what is conveyed to us as subtext often. Or even just the simple aesthetics of tilting a square versus tilting a long, thin rectangle. Good point. Talk about master class, sir. (laughs) Well, anyway, here is the first instance of that, and it happens with the porter's recounting of the accident that killed his friend. And you'll see it used for that purpose almost, almost significantly every time, because he hears this story from multiple people, and in every case but one, it is through this tilted angle. The story, as it's told at this point and at other points, but significantly, the first information he gets is that his friend was killed by a speeding truck and a couple of men carried him across to the square where he died almost immediately. At this point, he heads to the cemetery where Harry's funeral service is taking place. And this is where we meet Trevor Howard for the first time. He is Major Calloway. He represents the British occupying forces. And it's Trevor Howard at his thinnest, mustachiest, at his war office best. In retrospect, there's a great wardrobe choice here. Because we, as an audience, the first time at least, are not sure who he is. We know it's post-war, we know it's Vienna, we know it's occupation. But significantly, he has this almost PVC, shiny black leather, full-length overcoat which immediately connotes Gestapo to me. So he's immediately a menacing figure before we know what he's all about, just from the iconography. 
And to me, when he is talking about Harry Lyme to Holly Martins, it's with kind of a throwaway disdain. Mm. He's clearly not there as a friend. This is also where we meet Alita Valley playing Anna for the first time. Anna was Harry's lover. We see her first in profile, and significantly, when the priest gives her the opportunity to toss the dirt onto the grave, she doesn't take it and walks away. The first of many instances where I immediately think, what did she know and when did she know it? Does she make that decision because she knows something about what's in that coffin? Or is it just because she is so overcome with emotion or doesn't want to participate in that particular ritual? What's the significance of her refusal of that? I think also Alita Valley was a great choice for this role. I know at the time, David Selznick was really trying to make her into the next Ingrid Bergman, mm-hmm. essentially. There's a scene right in the middle of the film that cannot make that any more clear. And at the same time, I think I respond to her so much in this and other films that I'll mention in some different spots, because she has a hardness mm-hmm. at her core, I think. To me, she says, survivor? Does Ingrid Bergman not give you that impression? Is that the major difference between the two? What I was about to say, I was thinking that Alita Valley doesn't have any of that dewiness, mm-hmm. even though she's not a craggy old crone no, or anything like that. She's not a sea hag. No, she doesn't have warts. Just a, t- There's just a mental toughness. Mental toughness. And I think Ingrid Bergman has that as well. It just is a bit different. There's often, I think, a lack of warmth okay. in Alita Valley. Not a lack of passion, mm-hmm. but a lack of warmth. This is also an instance where that music, the Zither music, is playing constantly, and it's loud and insistent mm-hmm. in this time, which you, feels so odd. You usually hate underscoring, and th- this doesn't affect you that This way. is not the same. This is not a made-up piano score that's playing lightly that you think, can't somebody just go turn the radio off in the other room? This is not what that is. I would have thought, to me, the difference being... You don't feel like this score is as manipulative as other underscoring is. Because it certainly isn't. But that doesn't play into what you're talking about right here? It doesn't. Okay. Calloway then offers to give Holly Martins a ride. And he is talking to him about Harry Lyme, trying to suss out what their relationship was. And tellingly says, after Holly is talking about Harry being the best friend he ever had, Calloway says the best thing that ever happened to him essentially was his death. Holly is already crushed by the fact that he has arrived in Vienna and his friend is dead. All this is a whirlwind and edited that way. It is barely 10, 15 minutes into the movie. All of these things have happened. And so he's a little overwhelmed and he is now not responding very well to what Calloway is telling him about his newly deceased friend. He is basically breaking it down to him that Lime was a racketeer. And Holly's instinctive reaction to that is sure Cops pin this on the dead guy, whatever it was, petrol, tires. That it's the same sort of petty, quote-unquote, right. racket that most people would be involved in at the community level. How do you get in on that community-level racketeering? Is that the JCs? Is that... Come to our meeting on Tuesday okay. and I'll let you know. Okay. These days, local honey. <laughs> it's all about that. Well, Trevor Howard Calloway lays it out for him that it is more significant than that. But is not giving him the whole story at this point. So it's still those nuggets of information that we don't know how to put together into a cohesive story. And this is the scene that we played in our opening, where he compares this whole series of events to the plot of a cheap novelette, 
which is what Holly's career is based on. And in this exchange, Holly specifically significantly says, I've never been a fan of the police. I have to call them sheriffs in my novels. So they are already at odds. So much so that Holly takes a drunken swing at him, only to be knocked down by the sergeant that's accompanying the two of them. The major and the sergeant, though, offer to put him up. Oh, sure. They knock him out almost, but it's it's in good humor. The sergeant's a big fan sure. of his novels. The Oklahoma Kid. Near and dear to my heart. There you go. I, immediately, the first time I ever saw this, I thought, I love this movie. The understanding is he's going to be leaving on the first plane back to America the next day. He has a bit of a serendipitous meeting because we know he's broke. This job that he was coming for hasn't materialized. He's got nothing. And so a British official, upon essentially the recommendation of the sergeant, offers him the opportunity to be basically a guest speaker. Not just any British official. The most British of officials. The most perfect British official of all time. Wilfred Hyde White. That's a great bit of comic timing, too, because Wilfred Hyde White is essentially saying to whom we assume is his mistress, surreptitiously, I can't very well introduce you to everyone. (laughs) This opportunity to be this guest speaker basically gives Holly a chance to stay in the city for a period of time and figure out what has happened. While all of these things are going on, he also receives a mysterious phone call at the hotel desk. Again, a lot happening. A lot of threads converging into one point. A lot of things happening that you can barely keep up with. And now that I've watched this many times, I kind of stop keeping track. I want to pay attention to what's not being said, Mm -hmm. rather than these constant clues that are thrown at us that we learn actually are not what has happened. Holly sets up a meeting with the Baron, Kurtz. A proper Austrian with Mm -hmm. the coat and fur collar holding a tiny dog. One of the rather suspect characters that we saw at the funeral. We didn't know who he was at the time. He clearly was significant because of all the side eyes. Yes. And he looks like a lizard. If they were to have remade it maybe in 1979, I think Joel Grey would have played that part. (laughs) Okay, perfect. And the Baron talks about how he was Harry's best friend, except for maybe Holly. And he also mentioned, yes, we all have cigarettes and that kind of thing that's community level black marketing that i was talking about and the baron takes holly back to the road back to harry's building and describes the accident again it's still the continuous dutch angles and i cannot imagine the level of work that was involved in this film and the number of setups that Mm -hmm. that have taken place importantly holly is still very naive and unbelieving that his friend could have been involved in anything nefarious He maintains that for a long time. We get another variation of the story of Harry's death. I should say, he is still very naive and unbelieving, but this exchange with Kurtz is where his radar, I think, first starts to begin, and his little inner sleuth is beginning to work out, this is not adding up. Because there are inconsistencies, and why should there be? There's now a question of, whether his death was actually instantaneous, that possibly there was another witness there who is now no longer in Vienna. The existence of Anna. He's essentially being warned off in subtle ways, but isn't taking that bait. You also have the porter and his wife eavesdropping on this conversation as it's going on. Holly goes to the theater where he is told that Anna has been working and asks to see her. She's very dismissive. No, Harry never told me about you even though you profess to have been his best friend. 
I love the fact that this I was a friend of Harry Lime is a key that opens any door in this circle of people. It's a calling card that cannot be refused. Clearly, Anna is still in love with Harry. She says that she wants to be dead, too. She delivers that almost like a throwaway line, which I thought was great. The resignation in her delivery in that line is one of my favorite line readings in this whole thing. And there are even more differences in the story that she was told about how Harry died. Possibly more people were there. This is the first question of if it was really an accident. And at this moment, I was thinking about that idea of post-war, is it fatalism or realism? In that situation, I can understand her number one, wanting to die. Mm -hmm. Number two, why even bother to question or explore this conundrum? What can possibly come out of it? From a technical standpoint, I also want to point out that this is the first instance of the many Dutch angles where it's not telling the viewer this is an outright lie. It's telling you something else this time. Whether that's about Holly's mental state or her resignation, like you mentioned, I'm not entirely sure. But it is the first time where information is being communicated essentially honestly that we are left with this feeling that something is still out of balance. Is that because, do you think, as a character, she's not sure of what she believes? What's the source of the distress? What's the psychological distress? Why even believe one thing or another? He's gone. Nothing's going to change that. So it could be communicating that she's just without mooring at this point. Yeah. And when they go back to Harry's apartment and she sets about exploring the entire room and touching his things, using his brush, playing with his dice, almost in the background. Again, while more elements of the story are coming out, what she's doing is really what I'm paying attention to. Well, while she is exploring the space, this is the instance where Holly, via the porter, finds out there was that titular third man at the scene of the accident. Something is not right. The longer this conversation goes on, though, the porter gets more and more clammed up because Holly is becoming more insistent about let's get the police involved. And again, that moment of knowing some German, I know what Auslander means, mm -hmm. outsider. Don't talk to the police. Do not drum up this mess. To the porter, it's better to not get involved. Not get mixed up in this. And you know what? He's right. Yeah. No good deed goes unpunished in Vienna in 1949. Absolutely. You have an instance here that's going to pay off, at least for me, in multiple ways later, where you have a young boy who is witnessing this argument between the porter and Holly. That will be filed away for later use. It's a moment that has precedent in Green and Reed's previous collaboration, and it also echoes back even farther for me when you see this young boy on the street later there are slight echoes of Fritz Long's M with the bouncing ball and the Berlin streets and the Vienna streets and the balloon vendor and the little boy. You mentioned that there are a couple of instances for you that also call back to other things or presage other things that were significant in your experience. This is one of those things for me. The action continues to hurtle forward. There's no moment in the film where something important isn't happening. Holly and Anna go back to her place and... Her old lady porter announces, all nation's police are up there. This is obviously a big deal. When you have the police force for all four occupying forces involved in this, 
you should be getting an idea of the gravity of your situation. This is not, like he suspected in the beginning, just about cigarettes or tires or gasoline. I love the touch of this old lady wearing that huge blanket. Mm. I think it should give you a sense of the conditions that they're living in as well. Just like in the theater earlier when Anna says they don't want us to use the lights. Mm. I do want to reiterate how beautiful this is. What you were saying about palatial splendor. And they're living in a mixture, often in the same room, of literal destruction in the middle of splendor. It's fascinating and what it must feel like to have this heritage that you are now tunneling through, digging out of, having seen destroyed all around you, how that echoes the moral decay that allows you to take part in this black market, how Vienna is very much its own character, and it shares the problems that the human characters have. And to be clear, the characters are not rich. These clearly aren't buildings that they've lived in and built. This is just how things get repurposed and how economic circumstances can change so much. So we're looking at beautiful fixtures and wall hangings and facades. Marble and tapestries. and Amazing elements that they are wrapping themselves in blankets because they can't afford the heat. And inside her apartment, it's all about, I would like to see your papers, which should make anyone's heart stop beating. She hands them over, and they notice immediately something is fishy about these. It's very good work, but something's wrong. Holly asks her, sort of sotto voce, what's the deal with the papers? As he is also trying to communicate to Calloway that there was a third man at the accident site. Holly Martins, on the case. To which Calloway responds in one of my favorite lines, leave death to the professionals. <laughs> he very much recognizes that Holly is out of his element. And speaking of that other very dark subtext, she says that she's Czech and that the mm -hmm. Russians would claim her. And uh, we know that that's not a good thing. The other important thing that is communicated in this scene to me, this is my first inkling of Holly falling in love with Anna. He looks at her at one point in such a way that he hasn't looked at her before. You get the feeling from this character that this is easy for him to do. He's probably done this sort of thing before. He will do this sort of thing again. I think he's feeling that inclination to protection, which she does not want, ask for, or particularly need. Mm -hmm. Though maybe she does, but... We'll get into more about that. Because yes. I want to get into the relative maturity level of these characters in a little while. So they take Anna back to British HQ, and the Russians are looking through her papers. In the meantime, Holly goes to see Dr. Winkle, who we are told was Harry's personal doctor and also was at the scene of the accident. He and the Baron live together. We see that little dog again, my favorite side character. And Holly is quizzing him on this story, which is continuing not to add up. Back at British HQ, Calloway is interrogating Anna. It's that sense that you talked about earlier. What did she know and when did she know it? Mm -hmm. He shows her a picture of a man in a military hospital. We don't see the picture. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about that idea for a second. Because I think that is a thing that Carol Reed is fantastic at. Directing a movie is full of thousands of small choices. Where to put a camera. How to light a thing. How to elicit the appropriate reaction one of the things that Carol Reed is absolutely the best at is deciding what to show and what not to show. That editorial sense 
is what sets his work apart for me from a lot of his contemporaries. We'll see this pop up again a couple of times. Very significantly, things are left to our imagination. As I mentioned earlier, it's all about, in these later viewings, what is unsaid and unseen. Clearly, though, whatever is in that picture is pretty appalling, because she immediately reacts with, you're wrong about Harry. There's some bit about, she made a call on his behalf. She's complicit somehow in an action that took place later, a witness or a person involved in this racket who disappeared. So is this reaction she's having more to do with her naivete or her guilt? I think at no point is she naive. Mm. I really do not. I think this is about making a blind love choice when you should not. How is that not naive? That's what I was going to say. So how is that not naive? I guess I'm thinking naive would be if she didn't understand the world in which she was living. Okay, so you're drawing a line between knowing and making the decision anyway. Yes, okay, thank gotcha. you. Thank you for articulating that better gotcha. than I was. She's dismissed. Holly is waiting for her on the street below. They go to this club. The Baron, we find out, is a violinist there, and the Romanian we've heard about is there as well. Another instance of, I was a friend of Harry's opening a door, making a connection. My favorite bit in that is the Baron signals to the Romanian by twanging that string that he's playing. <laughs> this scene almost immediately follows the one you were talking about with the photo of the dead man. And here she shows Holly a photo of Harry that we again do not get to see. That is part of the biggest part of this movie for me, which is building the myth of Harry Lyme. The movie spends an hour telling us how epic in scope, essentially, this mercurial hairy lime is. So it's very much what you mentioned in the beginning of the show. It's not a whodunit. It's not what happened to him. It is all about who he is and what he did. And we're finding out more and more that what he did was abhorrent. And who he was, via his connection to these unsavory characters that we're meeting one after another, was not a model citizen. He wouldn't be getting an ambassadorship anytime soon. At this point, the police arrive, unrelated to mm -hmm. what Holly is dredging up. But in his singularly American way, mm. he tries to stir something up. Only an American can do that and not understand the repercussions of riling up the police in a closed country. That is naive. This is also... Dangerously naive. Yes. Fatally naive. This is also why Joseph Cotton is a fantastic choice for this part. I know you love him. I love him. Do you love him as I much do. as I do? Not Maybe not as much I'm as maybe you do. maybe a little bit higher. But there are things that he's done in his career that are among my all-time favorites, in particular Shadow of a Doubt. Absolutely. Your favorite. Except for Foreign Correspondent, your favorite movie of all time. <laughs> we all We know that. that. It's why established that? in the canon. You son of a bitch. <laughs> I was trying to work that one in. <laughs> Anywho. Well, there is a Hitchcock connection coming up shortly, connected to this Romanian funny that you mentioned. Absolutely. Speaking of not understanding the consequences of running off at the mouth, it is in this exchange with Popescu that Holly says, Oh, the porter told me this. This third man idea. Unwittingly, getting the man killed. Which we have happen in the next scene. Mm -hmm. We don't see that happen. We see the porter's reaction to whomever is in the room with him. We see a lot of things. We see 
immediately phone calls are made, wheels start to turn, all as a result of this thing that Holly said that he did not understand the significance of. Now, back in Anna's room, Holly and Anna are talking more about Harry. It's a key piece of information when Holly is recounting memories from their previous relationship. In school, talking about how he could fix anything, all of those fixes are cheats, really, that Mm. he's talking about. Shortcuts. But more of the myth-building, more of the romanticizing of the impact he had on their lives. And it is here that... I mentioned she is at her most Ingrid Bergman. This is the scene in particular that I was thinking of. It's that maudlin time of starting to get really sad because it was just around six when he would usually look in. She calls Holly Harry mistakenly as well. (laughs) Not the only time it happens. Now it's nighttime. They're heading in the direction of Harry's again, and there is a crowd gathered. We know the porter is dead. The little boy that you mentioned earlier with the ball and the beret. He rats him out. He does. And we all know that. <laughs> it is that. the cutest snitching I've ever seen. He draws attention to this guy was having an argument with a porter. I saw the whole thing. Everyone in the crowd begins to pay close attention and start to get that crowd mentality of this guy did it. He's completely oblivious to this happening until it's essentially too late and they have to make a run for it. This is the beginning to me of a really expertly crafted Hitchcockian sequence that I love. That is basically an extended chase sequence with a Chautauqua lecture shoved in the middle of it. I love it. (laughs) In the middle, there's that great stairwell Mm -hmm. shot that happens. Anyway, they flee the scene through the rain-soaked streets with the shadows and the angles. Through the literal rubble and broken steps. To make it back to his hotel where a car is waiting for him. He's not catching it because of the language barrier. The person at the desk at the hotel tells him, you don't need a car. There's one here for you already. He gets in. The driver has his instructions. Pedal to the metal. Headed to what we eventually find out is the lecture that he had forgotten all about that he had promised to give. The saddest speech at the Elks Lodge that you're ever going to see. He is the esteemed guest for the evening for this cultural re-education society that Wilfred Hyde White is in charge of. Unfortunately, Wilfred Hyde White did not bother to check his credentials, and he thinks he has a significant American author, a man of letters, which is all unraveled when he mentioned his biggest influence is Zane Grey, to literal groans in the audience. To me, he still could have come up with something and been a dynamic speaker, I think. I think it is his fault for not taking public speaking 101, (laughs) because the audience has wonderful questions that uh, if you sat there and thought about it for a second, you could come up with something interesting. Well, he does have a great exchange at the end because the Romanian, Popescu, shows up and they have this little cat and mouse thing where they are each declaring their intentions, Holly to continue this investigation, Popescu to warn him off seriously of this investigation that then culminates in another chase. It's very foreign correspondent, 39 steps. It's a fantastic sequence. Well, Holly makes good his escape again, manages to avoid these thugs that have been dispatched to possibly dispatch him and finds himself in the protective arms of Major Calloway again. And this time Calloway tells him, you're going to hear the facts. I'm going to tell you who Harry Lyme really was and what he really did. He introduces this whole thing, though, with one of my favorite lines from Calloway. Again, a very astute judge of Holly's character when he tells him, 
you were born to be murdered. <laughs> because he does very much pick up on that American obliviousness about him. He has very little sense of subtlety. He does not know when to play his cards close to the vest, which you would think a writer of westerns might know how to do that, but Callaway picks up on that character trait right away. I think it's also that element of we are loyal to our school friends. Mm -hmm. Well, he fills him in on Lyme's scam. And it is about penicillin. He stole from military hospitals, diluted it, and sold it. Not these few tubes, as Holly thinks, but a significant amount of possibly the most important medicine of the 20th century. I would like to point out that they got a shout out to our show in there because all of this material is presented via Magic Lantern Show. Thank you, Carol Reed. <laughs> we learn who was affected by this scam. It was soldiers, women in childbirth, children with meningitis. Mm. It was death. Again, we don't see. We're just left to our own horrifying imaginations. And they further lay out how these people are connected, how this ring was created, the inside man at the hospital. There are fingerprints and letters and arrows connecting lines to things. It's laid out for us. Incontrovertible evidence. And only Holly can think to ask, how could he have done it? 70 pounds a tube, that's how he did it. So Harry has moved from profiteer into full-fledged war criminal territory. Absolutely. And I want to take a very, very, very brief diversion and talk about how we saw this last year at the Paramount during their summer film series. Mm -hmm. The audience that we saw it to, I don't know if they just got... Uh, laughing gas from the dentist <laughs> they seemed to think that this was a Marx Brothers movie they Could, were bouncing off the walls I will say that quite often wherever we go except for the Alamo Draft House where it is rigidly enforced and the Austin Film Society where most often the crowd is hip to how you should behave contemporary movie audiences are terrible they were just laughing at everything and that's not to say that there isn't great and genuine humor in this mm -hmm. it's of a more subtle variety than the guffaws mm -hmm. that it seemed to elicit continuously mm -hmm. i don't get it and i don't get how you can watch this and again i'll bring this up when we talk about anna again later i don't know how you can have these facts laid out to you and think eh, no big deal light comedy. Mm -hmm. I think it has to do with what we were saying in our last episode about the Enchanted Cottage, about there being something that these audiences can't connect to. A modern audience cannot connect to this somehow, and so their only reaction is one of irony and distance. They cannot invest themselves in it because it seems like an outmoded form. The conventions are so uncommon to them, but it happens with even more contemporary films. I had the same experience when I went to see Cool Hand Luke, of all things. At the end, when they're trapped, when George Kennedy and Paul Newman are trapped and the police are coming for them, they were laughing at that like it was Three's Company. And weren't people laughing at Titty Cut Follies as well? I can see that a little bit more because it is so uncomfortable. And so that nervous thing that is people's only defense mechanism sometimes, I see it a little bit more with that. I don't know. I think the van mistakenly dropped these folks off and they meant to go to Six Flags. They were looking for a good time and they were ready to have it wherever. Okay. Well, we can agree. We only want to go to the movies with people who get it. 
Yes. Now, back to this. Okay. Harry is a killer. No two ways around right. it. And Holly accepts the information. This is one of the things I love about this characterization of him. So often in these movies, this character, if it's not a well-made film or well-written character, will continue to defy all logic and insist that their friend could not have done this. He is crestfallen, but when faced with undeniable evidence, he understands that this is what it is. He accepts it and begins to try to process it as truth. So he's left to deal with these emotions, and we return to Anna, who is sleeping in Harry's monogram pajamas. She has a little cat who we realize only liked Harry. The little cat's completely indifferent to Holly. He won't come clean about why he is planning to leave finally in the morning. She realizes that he's gone to see Calloway too, and now he knows about Harry. Two being the important part because she had just been previous to that. So she has found out all the same things he has. In the meantime, there's a man on the street below. He goes into a doorway. The cat trots over and snuggles him. So it's telling us something. Mm -hmm. But before that, we're back to Holly and Anna. This is the scene that I love Joseph Cotton in best. She thinks that he is overblowing the situation. Mm -hmm. He thinks that she is underplaying Harry's role in all of it. He sees Harry's death essentially as justice in that black and white pulp novel way, mm -hmm. as he's still trying to see if he would ever really have a chance with Anna. It's his expression and the way he plays this that's wonderful because I love Joseph Cotton at his most venal as well. Mm -hmm. And there's something about him that I respond to and this is the complete opposite of those roles. This is humble and sad and wistful and boyish. Boyish is exactly right. Because this is what I was saying earlier about the relative maturity level of these characters. The men in her life and her response to the men in her life. I feel like these two men are sides of the same coin, which also makes me wonder about Graham Greene's impression of himself. Because I really do think that he wrote these characters not necessarily as alter egos, but I think he infused each one of them with elements of himself that he found significant, even down to the name, Lime, Green, those parts of himself that were more unsavory, and, in Holly's case, being a writer of cheap novelettes. Which, I don't know, is that how Green viewed himself on his when he was at his lowest points? I think there is a lot of him in both of these men, and them being so emotionally underdeveloped, I wonder about his self-image. But in terms of just the characters in the movie, you have all those things you mentioned. The humility and the sadness. But simultaneously, he's still playing that, do you like me angle? Absolutely. He would take the opportunity if it was presented oh, to him. without a doubt. And in Harry's case, we soon find out sociopathy to the point that people are ants to him. He might as well be God in his own mind. Did I just spoil who was standing in the doorway? Yeah, I heard the car screech outside, <laughs> but I didn't say anything. The legendarily big reveal. Mm -hmm. It cannot be overemphasized how big a deal it's this is. It's such a great reveal when that light flashes across his face and you've got that Orson Welles tilt to the head and that knowing smile. He's such a magnificent bastard. He is so beautiful and terrible and charismatic I can't tell you how much I love that reveal. But still. <laughs> <laughs>
as amazing and magnetic as Orson Welles is, and obviously we're led to believe Harry is, was. Right, embodies all of those qualities. I just don't think you can justify loving a war criminal if you are in your best mind. So if I was to start watering down penicillin, you're telling me I'm getting the gate? Is that what you're telling Let's me? Let's ask Gary Ridgway's wife what she thinks about the oldest jazz. That's not, um, I don't think that works because okay. do you know how many, you would know. literally how many. Well, I may not, you would know. You, <laughs> yeah, what are you trying to say? I'm an authority. You find true crime fascinating. I do. And there's an aspect of it that fits with this that is inexplicable to me. But when we say, oh, that can't happen. You've got Albert DeSalvo. The Boston Strangler, reputed Boston Strangler, I guess I should say, still alleged one of the most high-profile cases of a woman writing him letters and then ditching her family to get married to him. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, same thing. Ted Bundy? Yes. Up until that point, sane women, in some cases journalists and other professionals, leaving everything behind to take up with killers. I argue with the sane part. So they but, were just keeping a lid on it until this opportunity revealed yeah, itself? Yeah, they were crazy creeps who loved other crazy creeps. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, he has essentially made her a collaborator. Mm -hmm. Literally, he had her make an important phone call that led to another person's death. She has seen the evidence. She accepts the evidence, I think, at least on some level. And to continue to love a person wouldn't some part of you think if he scammed at this level clearly at a remove he didn't plunge a knife into a baby he just allowed a baby to die how many film noir have we seen where the plot is you and i are going to kill my spouse but i think you're probably not going to somehow kill me later we're going to take this and run off together yes yeah, so how can you not think maybe he's also scamming me yeah got to be in the back of your mind somewhere. And she continues to chase after him, really. I don't get it. I don't condone it. You do it in increments. I don't ask you to kill a baby right away. <laughs> I ask you maybe to return something without a receipt for me. Okay. You do it in baby steps. You don't go for the, for the pay dirt right okay. off the bat. And then... It's like the lobster thing. You don't notice the heat being turned up, turned up until it's too late. And then once you know you're being boiled, I don't think it's mature to love a person who cannot love you back. Sure, that never happens. <laughs> it, yes, it happens all the time, and, and it's not a mature thing. Right. Let's get back to the Harry reveal. Okay. okay, Harry didn't die. He wasn't killed. There was no accident. He is very much alive. And in a moment, when he realizes he's been seen, he's gone again. It's this section where he is running through empty squares that seem to be devoid of all humans that I thought about Suspiria. Mm -hmm. Also, Alita Valley is in that. I don't think it's a coincidence. That movie thrives on that feeling of this vast expanse where there's no other human there to help you. But Holly has clearly seen him, so he gets in touch with Calloway, takes him back to the spot, trying to convince him, oh, Harry is alive. They then see the entry to the sewer. You mentioned way back when at the beginning of the episode that something rotten is mm. happening in the city. Literally. It's in the bowels of the city. That's how he got away. They exhume his grave and realize that orderly, his inside man in the hospital, is the one in the grave. That's the one they buried. 
They converge back at HQ. Anna is there. Holly reveals to her, I have seen Harry. She is overwhelmed. She didn't know. So she wasn't in on at least that part of the scam. You think so? Yes, I do. Okay. I really do. Because to me, there's an ambiguity there. Okay. Which I enjoy. It may be that I like it so much that I am perpetuating it beyond the evidence that's presented to me. But I like the notion of never being 100% sure if she knew all the way back to the beginning when she refused to throw dirt on that grave. Is it because she knew Harry wasn't in it? And she is just playing everyone with that toughness, with that lack of sentimentality that you would find in Ingrid Bergman. And she is making fools out of everyone. I don't know. I think if she did, she would be more angry that Harry hasn't come back for her yet. She's displaying that anger, though. Okay. I think she's hey. showing that hurt. We just don't understand that that's what it is at this point. Okay. In retrospect, go back and watch it the next time looking at her face and seeing what she is saying and see if it comes across that way to you because I really enjoy viewing it with that in mind. Okay. At least in this context, she's saying that she didn't. Mm. Now, they're dangling this carrot of they will help her with this paper, possibly repatriation issue if she tells them where Harry is. She can only think of it keeping him safe. Now, contrary to what I just said about enjoying that ambiguity, I did make a note here about the brilliant pacing of this and how it doles out information because all along the way i don't know if you have the same experience that i do the second that i formulated a question in my mind it seemed like the film answered it right then and there i don't know if this was just my imagination but i talked about watching the a and b stories really mm -hmm. the a story being harry was killed or it was an accident the b story being who was harry and what did he do the a story flies by the B story, I think, is when they take their time. Mm -hmm. And when you're paying attention, it feels like, oh, wait, no, there's something important here being said. And I've got to figure that out. Whereas the A story, all the information is thrown around quickly and you have no idea who to believe or what's going on. And it doesn't really matter. So I don't think it's the exact same thing you were feeling, okay. but tandem thoughts. Gotcha. Holly has decided to go find Harry. He makes that connection through the Baron and says that he'll be waiting by this Ferris wheel. This is when I thought of Wings of Desire. Mm -hmm. That idea of these kind of rusted out amusement parks in the middle of this wasteland. Beautifully photographed in black and white, no less. Harry, when he arrives, is what I can only describe as a bon vivant, really. <laughs> can we talk for a minute about Orson Welles? I know I already went off on this a little bit. He has boundless charisma. He is all things. I can only think of it that way. There may be no way to put into words how much I love that guy and even more so the idea of that guy. He parallels Harry Lyme very much in that respect. How his myth, his legend, far outstrips anything that he could have achieved as a mortal human being. As far as I know, he wasn't a war criminal, so it's easier for me Fingers to crossed. love the guy. But I cannot get enough of him. And they really parcel it out here. And so you savor every little bit. And when you get to this sequence on the Ferris wheel that culminates in that iconic cuckoo clock speech, it is masterful. And the two of them together are oh, perfect. Yeah, I love to watch them interact because of the distinctly different schools that they represent. It's also a completely different rhythm of conversation than we've had at any other point mm -hmm. in the film. 
They made a, a movie together. I don't know if you've heard of it. Citizen Kane. <laughs> it's not, not a, a lot thing. of people have seen it. Yeah. So they've got this history on and off screen. Mm -hmm. It's a great scene. And this is when Harry and Holly are talking about these people that you see below us as we're gliding through the air. Are they victims? Or are they dots? Harry's detached view of humanity that I referenced earlier. He feels it a considerable amount more acutely, I think, than the average black marketeer did. His is beyond the bootleg cigarette seller who is trying to make a few bucks to feed his family. To paraphrase Jimmy Stewart at the end of Rope, there is something in him that lets him do this thing. And any moralistic concern that Holly can bring up, be it belief in God or Anna, doesn't really mean no, anything. nothing overrides self-interest. Even as he's drawing Anna and a heart mm -hmm. on the window... <laughs> talking about how easy it will be to leave everything behind and offering to cut Holly in on the deal. And here's where we see the most masterful use of these Dutch angles that I was talking about. Because prior to this scene, these compositions are all fixed. You have a definite hard angle that the scene remains at, but because of the Ferris wheel setting, when Harry is making this pitch to bring Holly over to his side, the angles move from left to right and back again as Holly is mulling over, at least momentarily, what it would mean to join Harry in this endeavor. He's swaying, if only a little bit. He's made of sterner stuff, ultimately, but that unsettled state of mind is communicated here in the best use of those Dutch angles that I can think of. Maybe in all of film, ever. You briefly touched upon the cuckoo clock speech. Arguably one of the most famous speeches in all of filmdom. And as perfectly written as the screenplay itself is, the one thing that Orson Welles wrote for himself in that. Harry leaves Holly with this idea dangling that you're the only one who really has all of this evidence against me. You're the one who can really hang me with this. But I'm not going to do anything to hurt my old friend. Of course not. But hang on to the frame of that Ferris wheel just in case. Back with Calloway, Holly agrees that he's going to arrange some kind of a meeting so that Calloway can arrest him. But he says, don't ask me to tie the rope. So he's in, but not quite. Mm -hmm. Anna is still hanging in the balance as well. And clearly Holly's price in order to finally agree to arrange this meeting is to help Anna get away. Now, do you think this is an honorably motivated decision? When we catch up with him... Anna is being put on the train, her papers, her belongings. Holly is watching from a cafe in the train station. It looks as though he actually had no intention of revealing himself. Mm -hmm. She sees him and goes to him, but he didn't seek her out. So that's the only thing I can think of to side on the honorable okay. intention. She, though, quickly determines he's made a trade. Her for Harry. She's much more street smart than he is. Yes. Has to be, living in this environment for years now. And this is a great section that jumps between her reasoning that he's a part of me. I could not do a thing to harm him. If you want to sell your services, I'm not willing to be the price. But back at HQ, Callaway immediately talks about the fallacy of bravery and not helping to catch a war criminal. And to underscore that, Callaway takes him to the hospital to see Harry Lyme's victims. Plays it very craftily. It's just a stop I need to make on the way. It's not 
the mission, as it were, it clearly is. But we're going to make this incidental stop just a couple minutes. Don't need a lot of time. Why don't you come in with me and take a look at this? We, again, don't see what's inside these cribs. Genius move. We just see a little teddy bear being tossed into a pile face down. And more significantly, I think, Joseph Cotton's reaction to what he is observing in the crib. So that was the final pin that got knocked down. He's fully on board with, I'm going to deliver Harry to you. So they set up the trap. They have soldiers, police stationed throughout the square. Holly sets up this meeting, and we see this ominous shadow begin to make its way toward them. A perfect metaphor for the amount that Wells' shadow looms over this entire production. All the way back to what you mentioned, Citizen Kane and the techniques in that. How Carol Reed could not have made this, I don't think, if not for that having existed. There are things that Wells pioneered and or championed that were so important to film technique that show up in this in innumerable ways. In addition to, like I said, his personality that just is undeniable. Turns out, not him in this instance, it's a balloon vendor, which is one of those connections to M that I mentioned in the first place. So a debt to Fritz Long as well. Now, Anna shows up and basically ruins the setup. So clearly she didn't get on the train and get safely away. This infuriates me. Her papers are on <laughs> that train. You cannot think that you can survive for a moment. But anyway, I won't go on and on and on about that. So much so that it undoes the movie for you a little bit? No, okay. no, 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 not at all. It just makes me angry with her. <laughs> And it's when she is chastising him for being a police informer, that's the moment that Harry is in the doorway, realizes the jig is up, and takes off. Not just realizing the jig is up, but was about to shoot Holly. He had a gun in his hand when he heard police informant, and then the sergeant comes to the other door. It's another chase. Again, those amazing crumbling bricks and rubble back into the sewer. He's essentially exposed as a sniveling rat. He's flushed out into the most appropriate environment for that, the sewer. And it's like being chased through an M.C. Escher drawing, almost. He has the gun that you mentioned. He manages to shoot the sergeant. And as everyone is trying to take care of the sergeant, Holly takes his gun, and he's now going to be the sheriff and there's that beautiful scene where he's so close to escape when the fingers come through the grate isn't that the greatest i wrote and i don't know if you feel the same way it's almost as if he's feeling the air mm -hmm. rather than actually trying to move the grate mm -hmm. speaks to wells consummate skill as an actor that i can just see his fingertips and see the pleading in what he's doing harry and holly face each other harry gives him the nod and we hear off screen the gunshot so holly has ironically been forced into the position of being the policeman that he expressed such disdain for when he first met calloway it's a final showdown it's one of his western novels played out in real life and he is the tin star which has to leave him filled with disgust at himself i read an interesting thing that william cook said about this about how for british audiences this is a thriller about friendship and betrayal, and how, for Viennese audiences, it's a tragedy about Austria's troubled relationship with its own past. As the American, decades removed from it, how does it play to you? With the distance we achieve through the passage of time, it's both to us now, right? It's both of those things and more, possibly, to us now. 
time allowing that ability to see the results of collaboration, Mm -hmm. the results of losing or lacking your own moral compass. I definitely relate to that part more. The part about Vienna and the moral degradation that follows in the wake of such a trauma as World War II, to me seems much more significant than a friend doing you dirty. I side more with the Viennese audience, I guess, if I have to choose between the two. But to me, yes, like you say, with the passage of time, we see it in a proper historical context now. And I do think less about the relationship of Holly and Harry. That doesn't affect me at a deep level. I don't think, oh, how sad. Mm -hmm. I think about the larger implications of what he's done. Well, the last thing we have to do is put Harry in the ground again for the last time. There are parallels to the first funeral, obviously, but the one thing that's different that I love about this is how the priest is so disgusted with the whole thing. What he conveys in a couple of movements and one facial expression speaks volumes. And he's seen a lot at this point, I'm yes. sure. This time, Anna does toss the dirt in. Because she knows it's for real. Yeah. And again, she is walking away alone down the Strasse. Callaway offers to drive Holly to the airport for the last time. He has to be let out. He's waiting for her on the side of the road as the leaves are falling from the trees. Calloway drives off. We wait with Holly, and again it's another legendary element, this ending. She walks. I sort of roughly timed it. It's about 17 seconds as we see her in real time walk towards the camera, walk right past Holly without acknowledging him. I hope that it's the first and last place this road that he ever sees her. I hate to think that if there's a continuation of this, that he shows up at the apartment, knocking on the door, bringing flowers. I hope that her denial of him in this instance is the final nail in this coffin. You've said this sort of thing in a couple of episodes about get the idea, buddy. Yeah. She doesn't want you. It drives me crazy. That's the thing that infuriates me. Yes. That's the one thing where her showing up in the cafe bugs you. I hate that he gets out of that jeep and stands there expectantly as if he's owed something, as if he expects anything to come of it. And funnily, I believe this is correct, Graham Greene, in the novella that he wrote in order to prepare for the script, he had a happy ending. Mm -hmm. He caught up with her. Everything was maybe going to be okay. And he was really insistent that we should stick with this ending. However, Carol Reed and David Selznick... No. And he was proved to be wrong. Happily so. That he was wrong, the downbeat ending was the way to go. I wish it could have even been more downbeat. I wish she would have walked over and stomped on his foot, kicked his suitcase over, and then kept moving down the road. Stolen his papers, taking his hat, and she becomes him. (laughs) Throw his hat over the fence. So we've talked about how many amazing things happen in this film that are still talked about, the legendary pieces of filmmaking. Is that why you chose it? That is exactly why I chose it. I love this movie, not only because it's brilliantly made, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time, but because of the example it is of the alchemy of making a great film. You're not always guaranteed when you have great pieces that the whole will equal the sum of its parts. For instance, you tell me at one point in my life, hey, John Cleese and Rowan Atkinson are going to work together. I think, okay, that's going to be great. That turns out to be Rat Race. You tell me in 87, 
after Gary Oldman has made Sid and Nancy and Prick Up Your Ears, and William Hurt has made Kiss of the Spider Woman and Broadcast News, and they're going to do something together. Turns out in the mid-90s, that's Lost in Space. I was going to say, I was on Tenderhooks wondering, what the hell movie was that? <laughs> so, okay. you can't always guarantee that all of these great pieces will congeal into something magnificent. Now, I am not saying that those films have the pedigree that this one does. When you look at this, it's practically undeniable. Though there have been just as impressive a project on paper that has not worked out. But in this case, you've got, like you mentioned, Selznick, in addition to Carol Reed, Graham Greene, the principal performers, that great score. Alexander Korda as another production element. There's an interesting story, in fact, about Korda's involvement. Without him, this doesn't happen either. For three years, he was trying to convince Graham Greene to write this post-war screenplay for him. And finally, at dinner one night, to get Korda off his back, Graham Greene wrote the opening sentence of this story on the back of an envelope and said, Here, I started. And that eventually became the third man. So you have all of this serendipity happening in addition to fantastic and really influential performers and technicians, it came together to be even greater than you could have imagined. And what I imagined would have been pretty great had I seen this on paper. Now, there was one last thing about this that I wanted to ask you about. Peter Bogdanovich refers to Carol Reed as a non-auteur. He says this is maybe the greatest non-auteur film ever made. And I completely disagree with his assessment of that. What do you think? I disagree as well. Now, I don't know if he is speaking from the standpoint of that is a concept that came later. Mm, okay. And so you can't really retroactively apply the term. I disagree with that. Yeah. Because I can name Howard Hawks, for example, sure. other people like that. Even Val Luton as an auteur producer that predated all of that. Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. So on and so on. So, yes, I totally disagree as well. I think his signature is clearly stamped on it. Yeah. When you look, even just in a short run, the authorial voice that you see in The Fallen Idol, The Third Man, and Odd Man Out, there's no way that you can argue that he does not have an auteur sensibility. And that, sneakily enough, leads me to my recommendation, which in this case is The Fallen Idol, the film that predates this one from 1948. Another collaboration between Carol Reed and Graham Greene. It's a fantastic movie. And one that I think is not seen nearly often enough. Everyone knows The Third Man. Not nearly enough people know The Fallen Idol. Because I think, while not quite as important, it's still an all-timer. It's about the son of a diplomat who idolizes his father's butler, Baines, played by Ralph Richardson, who tells him fanciful stories of his personal history. And Baines is, in fact, using those stories to escape his own present, as well as entertain the young boy. Because his present includes a dying marriage. His wife accidentally falls to her death, which the boy witnesses and mistakenly thinks that he has seen Baines kill her and it is the boy's testimony that hurts rather than helps the investigation as far as Baines is concerned. Primarily I recommend it not only for Graham Greene and Carol Reed's collaboration and their sensibilities, but for the fantastic interplay between Ralph Richardson and Bobby Henry who plays the young charge. Their relationship is one of my favorite mentorships that I've ever seen, and how much you see the adult get out of it as well as the child is supremely interesting to me. They didn't make Ralph Richardson a Knight of the Realm for nothing. It's true. I saw this when I was very young, mm. possibly actually maybe a little too young, Okay. 
because I remember being very upset. My mother having to explain essentially why things aren't cleared up ah, okay. in a satisfactory way. And I really haven't gone back to it. Oh, let's watch it again. I need to. What about you? What's your recommendation? I chose Green for Danger. Oh, <laughs> I love that one so much. From 1947. Directed by Sidney Gilliatt, starring Alistair Sim, Leo Ginn, Sally Gray, and Trevor Howard. That's the immediate connection. Mm -hmm. There are lots of connections between Gilead and Reed, coincidentally. And this is about a Scotland Yard inspector who is called to investigate suspicious deaths at a rural hospital during World War II. I love it. I know you do. You're a gigantic Alistair mm -hmm. Sim fan. How can you not be? It's all about watching this guy puzzle this thing out, and he is clear about actually not knowing what's going on. It's beautiful. It's filmed in a fascinating manner. Amazing scenes, true suspense, a great ending. And it takes place during the war. And I also like those interactions and those decisions that are made within the context of war and how that changes people and changes relationships. So once again, as always, two great recommendations, The Fallen Idol and Green for Danger. These recommendations are so good. I'm high-fiving. Yay. Wait, hold on. Do that one more time. I did my slow fade away. This is, count. This is an <laughs> audio medium. Does. It still does, just for me. And that brings us to the end of episode 45. First and foremost, I want to thank Allie Shantz for leaving us a really nice review on iTunes. It's the first one we've gotten in a while, and she said a lot of nice things. We really appreciate it. Most importantly to us, she mentioned our sincerity and genuineness. And I really want to thank her for mentioning that because we really work hard at not being ironic and detached and snark-filled. We talk about these movies because we really love them. But not only that, we want other people to love them as well. We want our enthusiasm to be catching. And so I'm really glad that she mentioned that. And she goes on to say that our joy and our insights into the movies makes her want to go and check them out herself. So mission accomplished on our part, I feel like. Thanks, Allie, for doing that. We really appreciate it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our names in either of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I wanted to take a quick second and say thanks to everyone who shared the show or gave us feedback since the last episode. Matt Toller, Marty McKee, Laura Cannon, the folks at Warner Archive were nice enough to retweet our link to the Enchanted Cottage episode. We really appreciate that. Istara, Eric Parkinson at the podcast This Must Be The Place. Evan McDonald made a really great book recommendation for us connected to the Enchanted Cottage. So if you want to join our Facebook group, you can see that conversation. Scott Morris and the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film. Mike Scharf, RJ Tugas, the AB Film Review, Matteo Boscarol, Hanea Belser, Tim Lego, Jeff Duncanson, Grindhouse Dave, and Doug McCambridge. We really appreciate it anytime you guys go out of your way to mention the show. We don't advertise, so word of mouth is all we count on. Thank you very much. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or basically any other podcatcher that you use. You can find us. If you would like to leave us a review like Allie did, we certainly wouldn't mind that. We just launched a YouTube channel, and we will be uploading our back episodes to that and soon other original content as well. You can just search for Magic Lantern Podcast there. 
And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>